The following audio is from a sermon series from Paul's first epistle to the Corinthians. For more information about Sacred City Church, please visit sacredcitychurch.com. Hear the word of the Lord from 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 through 10. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, and then to the Twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning. Happy Easter. Happy Resurrection Sunday. I want to welcome you to Sacred City Church. If this is your first time worshiping with us, with us thank you very much for coming. Uh, my name is Justin. I'm the pastor here at Sacred City. We are thrilled that you've joined us today. Um, really, there's not much uh, special as far as anything that we're doing. This is a normal Sunday for us. Uh, we sing, we read liturgy, I preach through the Bible or through books of the Bible, and uh, we just welcome you into that this morning, welcome you into the family this morning. Um, we have been, last few months, going verse by verse through the book of 1 Corinthians, and uh, we're st- continuing to do that, but we're going to take a little jump. Um, if you guys are reading ahead, uh, you know, we get to this thing called divorce and remarriage in chapter 7. I figured that's probably not the best topic for Easter Sunday. So we jumped to 1 Corinthians 15, and we're going to be talking about the resurrection this morning. So I do want to welcome you. Thank you. It's going to be a little warm in here. Let me pray, and then we're going to jump in and study the word this morning. Father, we do thank you for what you have done in history. We thank you for sending your son down to this earth to live a perfect life and to die a substitutionary death for our sins in our place. We thank you for all that that means for us. Many of us have kind of heard it growing up, but we don't really know what it means for us. And I pray that this morning, as we study the nature of the resurrection, as we study what actually happened in history, that the light bulb would come on, that our hearts would be awakened, that we'd be moved um, through the resurrection. I pray that you would um, think through my mind and speak through my vocal cords, you'd hear through all of our ears. Just really be here this morning, Father. Uh, We pray all this for your glory, for your son's name, and for your son's fame, and for our joy. In Jesus' name we said, amen. Well, when Jesus Christ began his ministry at the age of 30, he did so by walking into town and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. Now, I know that word, when we hear that word gospel, for us, it's probably got a very religious connotation to it. We reserve it just for religious purposes. But the word gospel actually comes from the word that meant good news. This was how important news would spread during the first century. Basically, first century journalists, they were called heralds, right? They would come into town and they would say, gospel, good news, something has happened. On a secular level, the good news announced as something that would make one happy. For example, the news of a birth, of a son, or a military victory. Uh, I got one of the, the guys that I've been discipling who came to faith in the last few months. I was supposed to baptize him this morning. I got a text message from him on the way to church. Man, I can't make it. I was like, oh, he's like, my wife's in labor. I'm like, okay, that's, that's, all right. Her water just broke. You've been baptized in a different way. All right, I get it. Okay, go ahead, take care of that. Right? That was good news to me, though. Something that's happened. It was good news to him. He's got, a, he's got a son this morning. That's good news. That's gospel. It was also, they would ride into town and they'd say, hey, we've won. We've, we've won. Our, 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 our army's coming home. Right? They declare something. It was news of that sort. 
They would, they would ride in and just declare it. They'd find the most popular place in town and they'd just shout the good news. That was what gospel meant. Or in a more personal sense, right? When, when the mom and the midwife or whoever's in the tent giving birth, and giving birth used to be a whole lot more scary than it is today. I still don't like to be in the room, but it, it was a whole lot more scary back in the day. And then what would, what would happen? They would come out and they would say, you've got a son, good news, gospel, a son is born, and people would rejoice. That's good news being declared. Something has happened in history that changes everything, right? The gospel, a gospel, a good news, is a declaration that something good has happened that absolutely changes people. A baby is born, that changes us, right dads? Right? A war is over. That's news that has direct implications upon our lives. But in our day and age, we would say that the gospel, that's, that's how we, I would describe it. The gospel is hard news. The gospel is hard news. Have you ever heard this term before? Do you know the difference between hard news and soft news? Hard news are facts. Hard news is typically politics. This guy's won the election. This guy's lost the election. Hard news is weather right? This is happening. This did happen. You see a tornado take place or something like that. That's hard news. It's fact, right? It's life-changing events. This kingdom has toppled. This president has been elected. It's hard facts, right? That's hard news. But then soft news is the opposite, right? Soft news is advice, soft news are opinions, soft news are feel-good pieces, Right? Soft news is 10, 10 hottest looks for spring, right? That's soft news. And it's really weird in our media today because sometimes it's hard to uh, differentiate between hard news and soft news because our media just goes in and out of it. Like there's no difference. Like the president, you know, he, he signed this bill into policy and then, oh, look what the president's wife's wearing, right? Like you go in and out of hard news and soft news and it's like, what was that? Wait, what? Right? And it's hard to know what's the difference between hard news, something that's happened, fact that changes our life, and what's soft news, just advice, just opinion, just some things that take it or leave it, you, you know, it doesn't really affect you. It doesn't really require a response from you. And my, what I believe is that the same thing is happening in the church today. That in the church today, most people and most preachers even don't know the difference between hard news and soft news. And just... Where does the gospel fit? Where does the gospel of Jesus Christ? Is it hard news of a fact of an event? Or is it soft news advice? Now, when Paul here in the, the 15th chapter of the book of 1 Corinthians, and I'm going to let you know, this is the most important chapter in the whole book of 1 Corinthians. We're going to spend several weeks on it in the future when we're coming back to it. But this is the most important chapter in the whole book. All right? And when Paul is rummaging through his brain to find the right word for the gospel of Jesus Christ, the right news for the message of salvation, Paul grabs hold of this term that, that means hard news, this gospel hard news term. There was other terms he could have chosen, same with Jesus, but they chose this term that meant hard historical news. Look how he starts in verse 15, chapter, or chapter 15, verse 1. Now I would remind you, brothers of the gospel, that's the hard, good news that I preach to you. See, Paul is declaring not soft news, but hard news here. That the gospel is primarily about something that has happened that changes everything. Or if it's soft news, then it's primarily about something we must do. It's like an opinion piece. It's like a feel-good piece, some soft news about how to live a better life. Now, I think the church really messes up here. Is it hard news of a historical event that has happened? Or is it soft news about how to get your life in order and how to be better and how to clean up and how to live nice and find a good girl, right? Is it hard news or soft news? Now, I think many of us in this room would probably think that the gospel that Jesus preached and the gospel that Paul preached was soft news. It was good, but it's soft news. Take it or leave it. How to love your neighbor, how to forgive your enemies, how to live a more fulfilled life, how to be happier. See, this is the isn't this the type of stuff that religion deals with? It's primarily about advice, about how to live. But listen, if that were the case here, 
Jesus or Paul could have chose a different word. They had different words for that kind of soft, soft news and advice. But instead, he chose this word that meant hard historical news. Something has happened that if you get it, if you believe it, it will change everything. See, when heralds came into town, they didn't come in declaring soft news. They didn't come in and say, good news, a penny saved is a penny earned. Thanks for that. Really needed that. They didn't walk in and say, good news, here's three tips for a new younger you. See, that's soft news. The herald did not come in with wise sayings or good advice. The herald came in and said, something has happened in history that changes everything, and you must respond to it. You're, you have to respond to it. The battle is over. Victory is ours. Our fighting men are coming home. The queen has had a son. See, when this was, when this was written here, this gospel word had a real historical significance. It was tied to real historical events. It was hard news. So that's why Paul, when he could chose many different words, he co-ops this secular term about heralds coming in declaring victory and new kings and kids being born. He co-ops this word for his own purposes. Something, he's saying, has happened. Something so large, so colossal, so life-changing and kingdom toppling that everyone must hear it and respond to it. And Paul is about to go on in verse 1 and 2. Look, 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 just keep reading. Look at this. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel. I want you to think of the hard news. Something has happened that I preached to you. Look, which you received. So that means when they first heard it, they accepted it. They believed it. Now look at this in which you stand, okay, so presently they're believing it, so it has past implications, has present implications, and now watch, it's even going to have future implications. He says, and by which you are being saved, that is, if you continue to believe it, if you continue to believe this hard news, this evidence, these facts, if you continue to believe them, you will be saved in the future. Now, it's kind of like this. I remember as a kid, loving storms in the summer, right? My brother and I would love, we'd always beg mom to let us go outside and play in the rain and swim in the flooded creek next to our house, right? Probably the stupidest, most dangerous thing you could possibly do. Don't worry about that culvert down there. No big deal. Just jump in and let's have fun. Like we would beg mom to let us go out and swim in the flooded creeks when the storms would come. But typically, most of the time, mom would have to do something first. She'd have to check the news, right? She'd she turn, turn on the news, see what's going on. Okay, what's going on with this? She's, what's she looking for? She's looking for hard news. She turns on the weather, and many times this did happen. The weather, the weather herald says this, folks, this thunderstorm is actually, it's actually worse than we thought. Tornadoes have touched down in Scott County. Get inside, like, move to your basement. Now that's good hard news, right? But it's only good hard news for me if we believe it, right? I want to go out and play in the rain. I want to go out and play in the creek. But hey, I'm going to get, you know, a tornado's touchdown. I should probably have that information, receive that information, and then believe that information. But if I go, wow, that's great news, but I treat it like soft news, oh, that's just his opinion. You know those weathermen, probably out just making a buck. Thanks for the advice, but hey, this storm looks like fun, right? I've seen the Wizard of Oz. Dorothy didn't get hurt. Right? Tornadoes look like fun. See, that's good news, and it's hard news. Tornadoes have touched down. Fact. But I treat it like soft news. Oh, whatever. It's an advice. And what? Things can go really, really bad. Because I treated hard news like soft news. Now, Paul here is saying to the Corinthians, I want to remind you of this good hard news that you once believed so that you keep on trusting it and you keep on believing it so that in the end you will continue to be saved. So what Paul is about to remind the Corinthians right here and what we are about to read is the hard news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the hard news of salvation. But wait, before I get into that, salvation, being saved, what, what do we need to be saved from? 
Well, what is it that we need to be saved from? Now listen, the Bible says that our number one problem in life is that from birth, we have something wicked growing inside of us. Have you felt that? Have you discovered that yet? You've got news for you. You've got a parasite growing inside of you that keeps you from being happy. Have you realized that yet? It keeps you from being fulfilled in your life. It keeps you from experiencing true and lasting joy. And what this parasite does is it constantly deceives us. It constantly tricks us. See, it doesn't want to be put to death. That parasite inside doesn't want to be put to death. So it keeps us busy chasing false remedies. This is what it usually looks like. I'll be happy when I get married. That girl or that guy, that's what I need. That she or he is what will make me happy. For all those married in here, how'd that work out for you? No, what do we do when we get married? Then we move on. You know what? Once we have kids, then we'll finally be happy, right? She's really hard to live with, but once I give her a baby, I think that'll make things better. All right? So, all right, here we go. Soon as I get that promotion, things will settle down, and finally I'm going to be happy. Just got to get over that hump. The next rung on the corporate ladder, then I'm going to be happy. Or I can't wait for that vacation. Things have been so stressful at work. I just can't wait for that vacation. When I get that vacation, then I'll be happy. When I get that house, then we'll be happy. When I get that car, then we'll be happy. When I get that new relationship, then I'll be happy. Oh, I can't wait until I retire. Then I'll finally be happy. You talk to a guy who retired. I can't wait till I die. Then I'll finally be happy. <laughs> See, that's the parasite. That's the worm inside of us that eats our joy. We're never satisfied, and we've deceived ourselves into believing that the next big thing will be the one to make us happy. The Bible calls this parasite Sin. Now, and I don't want you just to dismiss me because you think you know what sin is. Most of us think that sin is some arbitrary list that God made up of things not to do that are fun, right? Like your mom, don't eat that whole chocolate bunny in one sitting. Come on, mom. Like, it's just kind of like that. She knows that would be a lot of fun. And she's telling me not to do that, right? That's not how God sees sin. When in reality, what sin is, listen, sin is the very thing that destroys our joy. It is a radical self-centeredness that destroys all of your contentment. As soon as you get something, you want something else. As soon as you get the thing you worked for, oh, I got it. Eight seconds, you're happy. And then you want the next thing. Paul says, this is what this whole chapter is about. Paul says, but wait, wait, wait. I've got good news for you. I've got really good, hard news. I can tell you what can kill the worm inside. I can tell you what can kill that parasite. And it's not soft news. Here's eight steps to poison the little bugger, right? It's not soft news, okay? It's hard news. Something has happened inside the universe. A historical event has happened that can kill ache that can kill that parasite within. Well, hopefully you're asking now, well, what is that hard news? And we're going to go. Let's look at, look at verse 3 right here. Paul, for I delivered to you. You hear that? He's a herald. I delivered to you. He's a mailman. He's running into town and he's saying, here's the hard news. This is what's happened. I delivered to you as of first importance. He's saying this is the most important thing for us to understand. I, I would challenge you to memorize these next 10 verses. If you want to understand the gospel of Jesus Christ, memorize these 10 verses. Here we go. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. So Paul's saying, somebody gave me this message and now I'm proclaiming it to you. I didn't make it up on my own. Look, 
that Christ died, that's Jesus, died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. Now, what's that mean? Jesus Christ died for our sins. That means Jesus Christ died to kill the worm that's inside of you. That thing that you're always unsatisfied, that always eats your joy, Christ died somehow, we'll talk about it in a minute, to somehow Christ's death can put that to death in you. He died for your sins. Now look, then it says, in accordance with the scripture. What does that mean? That means that in the Old Testament, the front half, if you have a Bible, the front half of your Bible was written hundreds and some parts thousands of years before the New Testament, before Jesus was ever born. And the Old Testament was all they had for scriptures when Paul was writing this. And the Old Testament foreshadows and prophesies the coming of this suffering servant who would take the place of sinful people and die in their place and forgive their sins. So when he says, this is, that Jesus Christ has died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, he's appealing to something that's been written for thousands of years that many of them already knew about. He's saying, God wrote this down a long time ago, promised this guy would come, this guy actually came, okay? And he did what the Old Testament said he would do, fulfilled hundreds of Old Testament prophecies down to minute details. Now, okay, how do we know this is hard news? How do we know this isn't just Paul's opinion? This, Paul's just making up a story. This is just, you know, his overactive imagination going a little wild, right? Well, how do you know if a tornado touched down in Scott County? Well, you either get it on video, right? Well, video didn't exist back then, so what do you do? Eyewitness testimony, right? You go, did you see it? What did it look like, right? Eyewitness testimony. Look what Paul is about to do here that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. So Jesus Christ was resurrected. That's a big deal, right? And then he, look, he appeared to Cephas. Now, Cephas, that's Peter. It's unique that he put it in here because, you know, if you know anything of the passion of the Christ, Peter was one of the closest uh, disciples to Jesus. But on the day, that, on the night he was betrayed, what did Peter do? Peter bounced, right? Peter said, my brain can't compute this. The son of God is being killed. I don't understand. I, I didn't think this was going to happen this way. So Peter denies Jesus and runs away, right? That's what happens. And now Paul is appealing to Peter's, listen, Peter's testimony. He's saying Jesus Christ, when he died and he was resurrected on Sunday, he showed up to Peter. Now, if you know anything about Peter, what did Peter do? Peter ran away from Jesus, didn't want anything to do with him, but then the resurrected Jesus shows up and says, Peter, and Peter's fishing. Peter went back to his old life. Peter thought, oh, I, I'm mistaken. He wasn't really the son of God because he died. Didn't understand that he was going to die and then resurrect. Christ comes back, and now Peter is one of the leaders of the Jerusalem church, right? Peter becomes one of the foundational apostles for the movement of the gospel. So Peter denied Jesus. What would turn Peter back after Christ is dead? A resurrected appearance. Hard evidence. Christ coming back. I'm here. I died, but I've been resurrected. Now keep reading. Then he appeared to the 12. So Jesus then shows up. The resurrected Jesus shows up to all of his apostles and he says, hey, I'm alive. Good Friday was awful, but resurrection is wonderful. He shows up in a resurrected physical body. They could touch him. They could put their hands in the scars. He wasn't a ghost. He didn't float into town. He was physical. Now keep reading. Then to the 12, look at this, verse six. Then... He appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Now, this is, for us, 21st century, fact-checking, evidence-seeking Americans, that might be the most important statement for us in 1 Corinthians right now. Because listen, this book was written 20 years after the death of Christ, okay? Okay? 
Almost all scholars agree. First Corinthians, one of the earliest texts that we have manuscripts for, it was written 20 years after the death of Jesus Christ. It was written before Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the gospels. First Corinthians was written before then. And what Paul is doing, listen, he's saying the gospel is a historical event. Over 500 people saw Jesus Christ resurrected. Most of them, he says, are still alive. Go ask them. Hard evidence. Paul's saying, don't just take my word for it. Go investigate. Go ask them. Go interview them. Go check my facts. They were there. Now listen, 17 years ago or so, I'll just give you one example. 17 years ago, uh, I was playing my last football game of my high school career, and we were playing in Burlington. I played for North Scott. First play of the game, I was making a tackle on kickoff, dislocated my elbow, tore all my ligaments, messed me all up. Okay? That's a story. You can believe it or not. But 17 years ago, there's a few people in this crowd who were actually there. 17, that's a long time. I feel old when I say that, right? You can go, you can talk to my parents. You can talk to my brother. You can go and say, did that really happen? Did, just, did that really happen? Right? And they can say, they can confirm my story. Even though it was 17 years ago, they can confirm, yes, that was a historical event that actually happened. We have the same thing here in 1 Corinthians. See, the fact of the resurrection isn't some pie-in-the-sky dream that people made up. Paul is writing it 20 years after Christ's death and resurrection, and he's saying over 500 people saw him, guys. Don't take my word for it. Go ask them. I love it. Most of them are still alive. Some of them are dead, but most of them are still alive, right? Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Look, then he appeared to James. This is unique. You know who James is? James is Jesus' brother. I love it because James is the guy who, when Jesus shows up and he starts his ministry at the age of 30 and he goes, surprise, family, I'm God's son. James goes, you crazy, that's what you are. You are crazy. Like it takes a lot, I said this before, it takes a lot to try to convince your younger brother or sister that you're God, right? It takes a lot. But, and Jesus couldn't do it. It was funny. Jesus could turn water into wine. Jesus, to, to, you know, multiplies bread. And James is like, still don't believe it, right? He, did, he couldn't convince him. He was not a follower of Jesus Christ. But then, <laughs> this might do it, right? Brothers hanging on the cross. Oh, I told him to stop saying he was God. But then three days later, Jimmy, what's up? I'm back, right? That's going to okay, maybe I get you now, right? Maybe you could be God's son. So Paul, as he's writing this very uh, detailed account of the death and resurrection of Jesus, he's including key eyewitnesses. Go talk to Peter. He betrayed him, and then he came back because Christ resurrected. Go talk to James. He didn't want nothing to do with them. Then he became one of his followers and eventually dies for the sake of Christianity. It takes a lot to, ch to change sides like that. Go, to, go interview them. Keep reading. Then to all the apostles, last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. If you know the story of the apostle Paul who's writing this, his name was Saul. He was one of the chief proponents of trying to snuff out Christianity. He believed to be a false sect. He believed to be a false religion. He was very Jewish. And he, he, he was literally holding coats where people were killing Stephen. And he, he wanted to snuff out the church and put an end to it right away. And then on his way to Damascus, Jesus Christ, the resurrected Jesus Christ, shows up, surprise, knocks him off his horse. Who are you? That's what, that's what Saul says. He says, I'm Jesus, the one you're persecuting. And he goes, now go into that town and wait for somebody. I'm going to tell you what you got to do. I love it. Paul's like, okay. Right? He was on his way to persecute. He's on his way to snuff out Christianity. And what does he do? He becomes, he writes two-thirds of the New Testament. He becomes like our number one apostle, the guys that we one of the guys that we really lean on, the apostle Paul. So Paul's saying, I was one too. I didn't believe it. I was antagonistic to the gospel. I was antagonistic to Jesus Christ. But what do you do when God shows up? What do you do when a dead man comes back to life what do you do? You believe. That's all I can do. You believe. So Paul is appealing now to them and saying, look at the facts. And, and I would say that to you this morning. Look at the facts. 
a murderer of Christian. Christians meets the resurrected Jesus and his whole life changes. Jesus' brother meets the resurrected Jesus, his whole life changes. See, I'm going to tell you this, soft news doesn't change people, right? Hard news changes people. Let's keep reading. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But look at this. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. By the grace of God, I This is what Paul's saying here. When I met the resurrected Jesus Christ, grace is the only thing that can define me now. Grace is the only thing that makes sense to me now. I was well-educated, I was influential, I was wealthy, but none of that can define me anymore. By the grace of God, I am what I am. Now, I'm going to tell you, look at the evidence. Peter, the apostles, over 500 people, Paul, would soft news change their lives in such a drastic way? Would they just, oh, I read this self-help piece and it just, oh, it just moved me right? One of those opinion polls in the Wall Street Journal, or, you know, the Times, or the Quad Times. Oh, just, oh, you got to read this. No. Evidence, hard, good news can change people in such a way. But here's the news. Are you treating? Here's the question for you. Do you treat the gospel of Jesus Christ like soft news? Or do you treat it like hard news? Something has happened in history that we must respond to. Listen, look at the facts. That's all I'm telling you this morning. Look at the facts. Every other religion in the world is soft news. Ten steps to reach nirvana. Three steps to enlightenment. Here's some advice on how to get in with the gods. Do these ten things and God will approve of you. Only Christianity has a different news story. See, everything changed the day that God sent his son to be born of a virgin the son, Jesus, lived a perfect and sinless life. What does that mean? That means he was born without the parasite. Jesus was born without the parasite within because he was God's son. Where every other person who has ever been born of a woman has made mistakes and has rebelled against God, Jesus did not. And then Jesus, in the middle of his 30s, in the prime of his life, he allows sinners to put him to death for crimes that he did not commit. Historical fact. You can go out and you can read extra biblical sources. You can read first century historians. This is a fact. But then Jesus didn't just die and go to heaven as a spirit. And then people kind of create a movement around him. No, three days later, a Sunday morning, God raised Jesus' physical body from the dead and he was seen by over 500 witnesses. If, that means if video had been around, right, this YouTube clip would have went viral. You could have caught it on video. It wasn't like, you know, that extraterrestrial, what a paranormal shows that they're all like, oh, I got an EMP reading. Beep, 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 beep. There's a spirit here, right? It wasn't like that. Physical body resurrected. It was real and verifiable fact. He died. He was a corpse. And God caused that corpse to be reinvigorated with new life. And this is Paul's point. Paul's entire point is this. The people who saw the resurrected Jesus Christ, their entire lives changed. Then Paul wrote this eyewitness account. And for the past 2,000 years, billions of people have had their entire lives changed. So let me ask this. Do you get this? Have you responded to this fact? Have you responded to this hard evidence, this good news? Have you, do, you even, do you understand what the gospel means? All other religions, all other religions always say, here is a way, it's soft news. Here is a way you can live better. Here is a way to wisdom. Here is a way to deal with your problems. Here is a way to relate to God. Here's the way to come into unity with the infinite soft news. Christianity alone, of all the world religions, comes in with hard news. 
Something has actually happened. Something has happened in history you can't ignore. In fact, if you do ignore it, it will overtake you. Paul, 500 people. Listen, people don't group hallucinate. Paul says over 500 people have seen the resurrected Jesus. Every other religion. Mormons say Jesus and a couple apostles appeared to a guy named Joseph Smith and told him to be the head of a new religion. Nobody else saw it. Just Joseph alone in the woods. Possibly eating mushrooms. Trust me, he says. Right? He says, trust me. I saw Jesus. I'm the new. I got the new thing. Trust me. I saw him. Nobody else saw it. Muhammad, same thing. I had a vision. I'm the new prophet. Nobody else sees it. Trust me, he says. Paul says, Jesus Christ was resurrected from the dead. Go ask any of those 500 people out there. Most of them are still alive. Fact check. Go check your sources. So what? Listen, I, I, I can't wait. I love talking about the resurrection because it's, so, it's a game changer, but today I'm just going to show you one thing. So what? What does that mean? Christ was resurrected. So what? I'm going to say, I'm, this, this is the one point I want to make today. The resurrection shows us all other attempts to kill the parasite, all other attempts to kill the worm, that dissatisfaction that's always there, the next thing will make me happy. The resurrection is the only thing that can kill that. Listen, you know why you get so touchy when it comes to money? Because you use money to make you happy. If you have money or the stuff that money can buy, you feel like you're good, right? I'm, I'm good today. Money, therefore, is your justification. That's what you're using to kill the worm, or you think you're using it to kill the worm of dissatisfaction. The more money I get, the happier I'm going to be. But what happens when somebody gets in the way between you and your money? Do you get depressed? Get angry? You get stressed? See, what this is saying is money is a poor justification. This is why you see so many suicides when people go bankrupt. Money was the thing they went to to try to kill the dissatisfaction inside of them. If I have money, it tells me I'm a good person. If it has money, it I'm happy, I'm fulfilled, I have joy. When money's gone, their joy's gone, their justification for living is gone, they kill themselves. If you're using money in here, let me just ask you this. How much money does it take to make you feel saved? you know anything about money, I know your answer. More? Right? Because nobody feels rich. Because there's always somebody that's got more than them. So they look up there and go, oh, I'm not like that. Right? So usually, how much money do you need to be happy? Ah, just a little bit more. Just a little bit more. What about this? What about the approval of other people? Is that your justification? Is that what you use to kind of kill that worm of dissatisfaction inside? Do other people being pleased with you, tell you that your life has meaning. Ask yourself, how much time do you spend really try, worrying and trying to make other people happy? You're constantly thinking, what do they think of me? Do they like me? Do they think I'm a good person? Bend over backwards, get walked over. And then I would ask you the same. How many people have to think you're really sweet for you to feel loved? That's the bad thing, right? All of them? <laughs> I want everyone to, like, more? I want more people to think that I'm good? It's that worm inside. Now, this is kind of shocking because the same is true for religion. See, going to church won't kill the worm. Coming on a Sunday morning, coming on Easter Sunday, it won't kill the worm of dissatisfaction. Many people go to church to feel better than others. Woo, check that off my list. I feel good. Listen to what C.S. Lewis says. Whenever we find that our religious life is making us feel that we're good above all, that we are better than someone else, I think we may be sure that we are being acted on not by God, 
but by the devil. The real test of being in the presence of God is that you either forget about yourself altogether or you see yourself as a small, dirty object. See, money, religion, and the approval of others are just a few examples, listen, of self-salvation. I'm trying to save. I feel inadequate. I feel constantly dissatisfied. I'm never happy. So I have to go find ways to save myself, find ways to make myself happy. All of these, and there are thousands more, are just ways that we try to kill this worm of dissatisfaction without the resurrection. You can do it. You can be good enough, do this, and God will be pleased with you. Do this, and your life will have meaning. Do this, and you'll be happy. All of it is soft news. It's the cover of Cosmo. Here's 10 tips for a better life. But here, in the Bible, we find something completely and utterly different. We don't find soft news with advice on how to improve our lives, but we find good, hard news on what God has done to kill the sin that eats at us. It's really cool. Later on in this chapter, Paul says this, the sting of death is sin. The sting of death is sin. Now, if you get that, you you can kind of see that that's really, that's actually something really weird to say. Most people would think that he should flip those words around and say that the sting of sin is death. Because death is the result of sin. But no, Paul is very purposefully saying the sting of death, the painful part of death, the poisonous part of death is sin. And he's saying this in light that this whole chapter is about resurrection. So what Paul is saying is this. Let me, let me paraphrase it. There is a worm growing inside of us. It's a self-awareness that eats at you and just picks and picks and picks at your joy. And this parasite will eventually kill you. We all die. But here's Paul's point. If you live your life trying to save yourself, trying to kill the worm of dissatisfaction on your own, trying to satisfy that inner emptiness. When you die, listen, the sting of death is that your sin is still there. That inner emptiness, that worm is still present. You don't just die and stop existing. No, it's going to get far worse for you because after death, you will be judged for your sins. The worm has not been dealt with. The parasite has not been dealt with. And let me tell you this. If the parasite within hasn't been dealt with, what's eternity going to be like? Can you imagine your selfishness multiplied by infinity? Can you imagine the maladies you have in your body, the the weird stuff that you think, the twistedness sometimes of your heart? Can you imagine that worm that's within you multiplied by eternity? C.S. Lewis says that that hell is actually inside of us. It's our selfishness multiplied by infinity. See, that worm has got to be dealt with. That sin has to be atoned for, has to be paid for. But for the Christian, now this is the good news as I close. For the Christian, for the person who sees the good news of Jesus' perfect life, his substitutionary death, he took our place, and then his resurrection, listen, death has lost its sting. Leonard Cohen, the one who wrote the song Hallelujah, he says this, there's a crack in everything. That's how the light gets in. Everyone dies. There's no escaping it, right? Prolong it. Go to surgeons and get your face pulled back to look younger, right? Take some pills, eat healthy, exercise. You're still not going to change the fact that everyone dies. Death is total and universal. But listen, Jesus Christ has punched a hole in death, and that's how the light gets in. 
In Jesus Christ's resurrection, he defeated death and paid the debt of, sting, of sin, removing its stinger. He's punched a hole in death, and that's how the light gets in. Now listen, this old hymn from the 1800s by George Herbert, it might say it best. It's called a dialogue anthem. If you've got that, let's put that up here. Let me read it for us this morning. This is a, 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 a kind of a call and response between a, a, a dialogue between a Christian and death. The Christian says this, Alas, poor death, where is thy glory? Where is thy famous force, thy ancient sting? And death says this, Alas, poor mortal, void of story. God spell and read how I've killed thy king. Christian, poor death. And who is hurt thereby? Thy curse being laid on him makes thee accursed. Death, let losers talk, yet thou shalt die. These arms shall crush thee. Christian says, spare not, do thy worst. I shall be one day better than before. But thou so much worse that thou shalt be no more. What's the Christian doing? He's saying, Come on, death, do your best. You've lost your sting. Sin has been dealt with on the cross. The worm within me has been put to death when Jesus Christ was put to death. And listen, the resurrection of Jesus is my proof. It's my receipt that the debt has been paid. The worm has been destroyed. Therefore, when I die, the worm will be gone once and for all. All death can do to me now is make me happier by making me holier. That Jesus Christ has hijacked death. And now death, this is what Herbert says in another place. Death used to be an executioner, but God has made it a gardener. Death used to be the thing that we feared. Death used to be the point where when you die your sin is still there and it goes on into eternity. But now, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, death, all death does is plant my worm-infested body into the ground so a new one can grow in its place, sin-free. That's what C.S. Lewis says again. If we let him... He will make the feeblest and the filthy of us into a dazzling, radiant, immortal creature pulsating all through with such energy and joy and wisdom and love as we cannot now imagine. Like a stainless, bright mirror which reflects back to God perfectly, though of course on a smaller scale, his own boundless power and delight and goodness. That is what we are in for. Nothing less. See, Christianity isn't soft news. I'm not here this morning saying, come to church and your life will be better. Follow these three steps and you'll be a happier, joyful, more giving human being. I'm announcing to you what Paul announced to us, what Jesus Christ announced to the world. Jesus Christ was the son of God. He lived a perfect life. And yet he went to the cross to take our sin with him. This is what it means. He died for our worms. He took it in himself and died and paid the debt, killed them there, and was resurrected, proving that he did the job. If you go to Von Mar and you buy something and you walk around the store and you go to walk out and they go, oh, excuse me, excuse me, did, did you pay for that? You don't just go, yeah, I did, out, right? They don't... You, what do you do? You pull out your receipt and say, look, this, here's the receipt. I paid for it. This item has been paid for. The resurrection of Christ is the hard evidence that our sins have been paid for. And later on in the chapter, he says, if Christ hasn't been resurrected, then we're still in our sins and our faith is futile. Christianity is not about being a better person. Christianity is about responding to the son of God dying for you. That's where we're at this morning. Have you responded to that? Have you treated it like hard news? Let me pray.
Father, you are a God who exists outside of history. You are above and beyond it all. You are eternal. You are infinite. You are immortal. And yet you wrote a story. You wrote a narrative so complex that the only way to free humans from the worm inside was for you to send your one and only son to come and take our place, to feel our shame, to feel our guilt, to feel our turmoil, to feel our struggle. And what do we do? Let us not confuse ourselves. If Jesus Christ existed today, we would crucify him again. Because he's perfect, he's holy, he shows us we're not. He knows all, he knows our heart, he knows the bent, the wickedness of our heart. So we shout, crucify him, crucify him. But in your plan, Jesus Christ goes willingly, gives his life up sacrificially, does it with the, for the joy, he says, that's set before him, and pays our debt so that in the resurrection we see it was all real. It's not a hoax. It's not a fairy tale. It's not a myth. The resurrection proves that God accepted the payment. And now when we put our faith in the work of Christ, we have nothing to fear. Death is no longer the end of us. Death is no longer an executioner. It's nothing but a gardener. Father, I, I think as we believe that, it changes us today. It changed Paul. It changed Peter. It changed James. It's changed billions of people in the last 2,000 years. And as we believe it this morning, it can change us. Would you give faith to people this morning? Would you cause them to embrace you and see the beauty in the gospel? Be glorified this morning. Christ's name. Amen.